Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, we receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 109 of History of the Marine Corps. Desegregation in the Corps, Part 1. Montford Point was established in 1942, and this is the perfect time to take a break from the Pacific and focus the next few episodes on the history of desegregation in the Marine Corps. This is a challenging topic to cover. Most Marine Corps officers, including many well-known ones, didn't support the idea of African Americans in the Corps. The primary reason why Monfort Point was established was because the Corps was forced to integrate. I've said this multiple times, but this is the history of the Marine Corps, not warm and fuzzy stories about the Marine Corps. If you're only looking for the latter, there are countless social media sites and a few podcasts that will provide you with great information. I've always felt that the Corps' history should be shared in its entirety. The wins, losses, the good and the bad. If we don't talk about how we fucked up in the past, we will only repeat our mistakes in the future. Marines at Montfort Point overcame substantial hurdles to serve in the Corps. Not only were they trying to enlist in a branch that literally didn't want them, this was confirmed by Holcomb in testimony before the General Board of the Navy, where he concluded with the claim that they were going to try to, quote, break into a club that doesn't want them, unquote. But they also had to overcome the doubt that they could meet the standards of the Corps. Hashmark Johnson, the recruit depot sergeant major, trained his Marines hard to ensure that there would be no question that Marines produced in Monford Point would exceed the standards set by the Marine Corps. These men fought an uphill battle for their place in the Corps. They are the epitome of always faithful. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. During World War II, the Marine Corps had many milestones that shaped our small branch into one of the world's most feared and respected military forces. Marines usually reminisce about the extreme fighting conditions faced in the Pacific, and rightfully so. After all, we are a military branch, so highlighting examples of heroism during battle is appropriate and expected. However, some milestones are often overlooked, but have contributed significantly to the current structure of the Corps. One of those milestones is desegregation in the military. I have spent the past four years sharing the history of the Marine Corps through podcasts and social media posts. Any reasonable person can see that I have a passion for the Corps. It was a big part of my life during my early adulthood, and the lessons I have learned in the Corps have stuck with me through life. 
Understand that when I say the Marine Corps has always been shit at accepting new demographics into its ranks, know that my criticism comes from a place of love. From women to African Americans, and to some extent even the Irish, Marines have always resisted new demographics serving in their ranks. We are often the last branch to allow new groups in, and the decision is rarely ours. You can see this resistance play out today. The repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, where gay and lesbian service members were prohibited from serving openly, or DOD Instruction 6130, that updated requirements for transgender military service, has received a lot of criticism. Whether or not these ideas should be supported is not the intent of this episode, so we'll leave that discussion for another time. But critics tend to always predict that the change will inevitably bring an end to the core, which is why I tend to take most chicken little prophecies with a grain of salt. This warning has been echoed since the beginning, and it was certainly forecasted when the U.S. military desegregated. The history of African Americans serving in the Corps dates back to our beginning. During the American Revolution, an estimated 13 African Americans served in the Continental Marines. The first to enlist was John Martin, also known as Quito. He was the slave of William Marshall of Wilmington, Delaware, and in April 1776, Captain Miles Pennington of the Continental Brig USS Reprisal recruited Martin without his owner's permission. Private Martin was part of the crew that became the first vessels of the Continental Navy to arrive in European waters. That crew also captured five British merchant vessels on a single cruise in Europe. In October 1777, on their way back to the United States, the reprisal ran into a large storm, and it sunk off Newfoundland's coast, killing Martin and all on board, except for one cook, who was picked up by a French ship. In December 1776, Captain Robert Mullen recruited two African Americans out of Tun Tavern, Private Isaac Walker and a man who was only known as Orange, served in Mullen's company. On December 25th, George Washington began his famous crossing of the Delaware, while 1,400 Hessians celebrated Christmas Day. Marines were there, and they fought with U.S. troops during the battle. Mullen's company, including Walker and Orange, crossed the Delaware River and fought the British at Princeton in January 1777. On a side note, if you want to learn more about the crossing, including why Washington decided to move on Christmas Day, and how Marines were involved, I cover it in episodes 14 through 16, The Marines Help Out General Washington. On May 8, 1792, things changed. The second U.S. Congress passed the Militia Act. The primary purpose of this document was to allow the U.S. President to temporarily take control of state militias in times of crisis. However, the language in that act specifically called for white males. Quote, Be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America, in Congress assembled, that each and every free, able-bodied white male citizen of the respective states who is or shall be of age of 18 years and under the age of 45, be enrolled in the militia, unquote. This mindset was set in the Marine Corps in 1798. Before the Corps was reestablished on July 11th, United States Secretary of War James McHenry released the rules and regulations respecting the recruiting service. 
McHenry's orders listed several articles recruiters should look for when finding appropriate recruits for service. His third article states, quote, Negroes, mulattoes, or Indians are not to be enlisted. Natives of fair conduct and character are to be preferred, but foreigners of good reputation for sobriety and honesty may also be enlisted. Any recruiting officer enlisting a transient person who shall desert before marching from place of rendezvous shall reimburse out of his pay the loss sustained by such desertion. Unquote. When William Ward Burroughs took his seat as the first commandant of the re-established United States Marine Corps, he wrote a letter to Lieutenant John Hall stating, quote, You may enlist as many drummers and fifers as possible. I do not care what country the drummers and fifers are of, but you must be careful not to enlist more foreigners than as one to three natives. You can make use of blacks and mulattoes while you recruit, but you cannot enlist them, unquote. Burroughs's order means that the United States Marine Corps had an explicit policy prohibiting African Americans from enlisting since its reestablishment. Although this policy was in effect, the Navy didn't follow it too closely. During the 1800s, the Navy commonly enlisted African Americans. They had to issue a directive in 1839 stating, quote, No more than 5% of enlistees could be blacks. Unquote. The Militia Act and the Department of War's rules and regulations remained in effect until the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. During the Civil War, thousands of African Americans served in the Army and the Navy, but there is no known record of black Marines serving in the 1800s. After World War I, the Army continued to allow African Americans to serve, but created segregated units. The Navy assigned most of them to the Messmen branch, the Marine Corps continued their prohibition. On June 25, 1941, President Franklin D. Roosevelt issued Executive Order 8802, establishing the Fair Employment Practices Commission. Quote, in affirming the policy of full participation in the defense program by all persons, regardless of color, race, creed, or national origin, and directing certain actions in furtherance of said policy, all departments of the government, including the armed forces, shall lead the way in erasing discrimination over color or race. Unquote. Roosevelt's decision did not go over well at Quantico. The majority of Marine officers felt that African Americans could not meet the standards of the Marine Corps. This philosophy included General Holcomb. On January 23, 1942, in testimony before the General Board of the Navy, he stated, quote, There would be a definite loss of efficiency in the Marine Corps if we have to take Negroes. He goes on to say, If it were a question of having a Marine Corps of 5,000 whites or 250,000 Negroes, I would rather have the whites. He concluded his testimony with, The Negro race has every opportunity now to satisfy its aspirations for combat in the Army a very much larger organization than the Navy or Marine Corps, and their desire to enter the naval service is largely, I think, to break into a club that doesn't want them, unquote. Despite Holcomb's reluctance to accept African Americans into service, the decision was above his pay grade. On March 19th, the head of the Republican Party, Wendell L. Wilkie, gave a speech at the Freedom House inaugural dinner, 
and criticized the Navy's decision to assign African Americans as messmen as a mockery. He said, quote, Are we always so alert to practice democracy here at home as we are to proclaim it abroad? Unquote. Less than a month after that speech, Secretary of the Navy, Frank Knox, released an order that stated the Navy, Coast Guard, and Marine Corps would accept blacks for enlistment for general service. The Navy released a statement on June 1st saying they would recruit 1,000 African Americans per month for shore and high sea service, and during June and July, the Marine Corps will recruit 900 to form a battalion. In 1968, General Ray A. Robinson, who was the officer in charge of the Personnel Section, Division of Plans and Policies, recounted his thoughts on this decision during an interview. Quote, When the colored came in, we had the appropriations and the authority, and we could have gotten 40,000 white people. It just scared us to death when the colored were put on it. I went over to the Selective Service and saw General Hershey, and he turned me over to a lieutenant colonel. That was in April, and he was one grand person. I told him, Eleanor, he's referring to Eleanor Roosevelt, says we got to take in Negroes, and we are just scared to death. We've never had any in. We don't know how to handle them. The lieutenant colonel said, I'll do my best to help you get good ones. I'll get the word around that if you want to die young, join the Marines. So anybody that joins has got to be pretty good. Unquote. Without an option, Holcomb had to prepare for a new unit in the Corps. Even though he was against African Americans serving, he was not going to drag his feet with this mission simply because he disagreed with the decision. He searched for the best Marine for the job. He looked for, quote, the best type of officer on this project because it will take a great deal of character and technique to make this thing a success. And if it is forced upon us, we must make it a success, unquote. He selected Colonel Samuel A. Woods Jr. for the job. Woods was from South Carolina and a graduate of the Citadel. He was an experienced officer with a phenomenal record. Woods had 25 years of experience in the Corps and served in France during World War I, Cuba, China, the Dominican Republic, and the Philippines. Woods developed a plan and presented it to General Keller Rocky on April 21st. His solution accommodated 1,000 black reserve recruits, and after six months of training, they would serve as the new defense battalion. He proposed that the training would occur at Mumford Point, M-U-M-F-O-R-D, at the Marine Barracks in New River, North Carolina. This site would later be renamed Montford Point. $750,000 was allocated to construct temporary barracks and facilities. The camp consisted of a headquarter building, a chapel, two warehouses, a mess hall, a dispensary, a steam generating plant, a motor pool, barracks and recreational facilities for the white marines, a barber shop, and 120 green huts for the recruits. Each hut housed 16 men. Although sometimes the number of recruits stuffed in the huts was doubled. The six months of training proposed by Woods included boot camp and basic combat training. Once the six months were up, the new Marines would receive combat equipment and organize as a composite defense battalion, and NCOs would be selected to lead their prospective units. 
Promotion to an NCO was determined by the service length, experience, and demonstrated ability of the Marines. Woods took his job seriously, and he did an admirable job with his mission. In the words of one Monford Point NCO, who served closely with him, his most outstanding quality was, quote, his absolute fairness. He would throw the book at you if you had it coming, but he would certainly give you an opportunity to prove yourself, unquote. Recruiting started on June 1, 1942. The Eastern and Central Recruiting Divisions of the Marine Corps had a quota of 200 enlistees each. The Southern Division's quota was 500. Men must be citizens of the United States between 17 to 29 years old and meet existing standards. The service record book and the enlistment contract were all stamped colored. The first men to enlist were Alfred Masters and George O. Thompson. They were at the doors right on June 1st. The following day, George James and John E. Key Tillman signed up, Leonard L. Burns the day after, and Edward A. Culp on the 5th. All of these men were from Florida. On June 8th, James W. Brown from New York enlisted, and David W. Shepard from Charleston signed up. Although these motivators enlisted early, recruiting was slow. By the end of the month, only 63 African Americans had enlisted. The Marine Corps was looking for recruits with previous experience being cooks, typists, or truck drivers. They received priority. When a recruiter in Boston told Obie Hall that he could join the Marine Corps immediately if he had any experience in these specialties, he said he was a truck driver. Later, he confessed he, quote, no more could drive a truck than the man on the moon, unquote. Many men who signed up simply just wanted to be Marines. Edgar R. Huff from Gadsden, Alabama stated, quote, I wanted to be a Marine because I had always heard that the Marine Corps was the toughest outfit going, and I felt that I was the toughest going, and so I wanted to be a member of the best organization, unquote. Huff later rose to the rank of Sergeant Major. The headquarter and service battery of the 51st Composite Defense Battalion was activated at Monford Point on August 18, 1942. By September, recruit training began. Now let that timeline sink in for a while. Woods presented his plan for Montford Point at the end of April. Five months later, he had the budget approved and the facility was operational enough to allow training to start. Why can't we get anything done this quickly anymore? I work in the civilian sector and it takes me about five months to get a budget approved for new software. The first, second, and third platoons were organized with 40 men each and each recruit had the pleasure of meeting a Marine Corps drill instructor for the first time. The DIs selected were some of the most experienced in the Corps. Gilbert H. Johnson recounted that the drill instructors, quote, set about from the very beginning to get us thoroughly indoctrinated into the habits and the thinking and the actions of the Marine Corps. Discipline seemed to be their lone stock in trade, and they applied it with a vengeance, very much to our later benefit. Unquote. Johnson knew a little something about boot camp. He served in the Army's 25th Infantry in the 20s and spent most of his 30s as a Navy mess attendant and officer steward. At 37, he requested to be discharged from the Navy to join the Marine Corps. He was known to other Marines as Hashmark 
because of the prior service stripe he wore. Phenomenal recruits were singled out and given the role of assistant DIs, otherwise known as acting jacks. On November 1st, 16 privates were promoted to PFC. On the 19th, four privates were promoted to assistant cooks. The Marine Corps rank structure was a little confusing back then, but a PFC and an assistant cook were on the same pay grade. In December, the recruits graduated boot camp and were the Corps' newest Marines. And just like every other Marine to graduate boot camp, they poured out of the front gate in their uniforms and strutted downtown. But despite their accomplishment, the residents of Jacksonville weren't welcoming. Merchants closed their stores, and the bus station closed its ticket office. The irony of the situation was that the Marines didn't want to hang out in Jacksonville. It's kind of like that today. They wanted to visit larger surrounding towns where the black population was a lot more prevalent. But due to the behavior of the local residents, they were stuck in Jayville. When Colonel Woods heard the news, he ordered the battalion's motor tee to pick up the new devil dogs and take them to wherever towns they wished to visit. The truck stayed with the Marines and returned them to Monford Point when Libel was over. He also spoke to public transportation and arranged for the buses to be open for the Marines. Although buses were now running, Marines from Monford Point still had to deal with segregation. They were forced to ride in the back of the bus. Drivers would speed past them and sometimes were flat-out refused entry by bus drivers. There were a few instances where Monford Point Marines would hijack the bus, leave the driver on the side of the road, and then leave the bus near the camp gate for the transit company to come pick it up later. With more Marines coming into Monford Point, it soon became clear that the current resources had to be increased to accommodate the growing battalion. Colonel Woods presented a plan to headquarters that proposed a camp to house 1,000 men. He also proposed a mess attendant school and an officer's cooks and steward school. Shortly after, Jerome Alcorn, Oral Cherry, and Robert Davis were appointed as the first NCOs and served as field cooks. This was a milestone that wasn't easy to achieve. General Holcomb took a page from the Army's handbook and created a policy that avoided placing blacks in charge of whites. In March 1943, he issued a classified letter of instruction that stated, quote, It is essential that in no case shall there be a colored non-commissioned officer senior to white men in the same unit, and desirable that few, if any, be on the same rank, unquote. I'll post the letter on our website under this episode's page if you want to read the whole thing. By April, the original drill instructors were gone and all DIs were black NCOs who had proven themselves in training. This law included Hashmark Johnson. Hashmark became the first field sergeant major and later became the sergeant major of the recruit depot battalion. He was determined that there would be no question that Marines produced in Monford Point would exceed the standards set by the Marine Corps. He did not take it easy on his recruits. During a Montford Point Marine Association meeting in 1967, he recounted, quote, I was an ogre to some of you that met me on the drill field and in the huts of Montford more than a quarter century ago. I was a stern instructor, but I was fair. I was an exacting instructor, 
but with some understanding of the many problems involved. I kept before me, always, that nearly impossible goal to qualify in a few weeks, at the most a few months, a type of Marine fully qualified in every respect to wear that much-cherished globe and anchor. You were untried. The objectives were to qualify you with loyalty, with a devotion to duty, and with a determination equal to all, transcended by none. As I look into your faces tonight, I remember the youthful and sometimes pained expressions at something I may have said. But I remember something you did. You measured up. By a slim margin, perhaps, but measure up you did. You achieved your goal. That realization creates within me a warm appreciation of you and a deep sense of personal gratitude. Unquote. On April 1, 1943, Colonel Woods was transferred to the 23rd Marines. Lieutenant Colonel Floyd Stevenson eventually took command of the 51st. Stevenson was an experienced artillery officer who served on Pearl Harbor during Japan's attack. He recommended that the 51st become a heavy defense battery within two weeks of taking over. Colonel Woods supported Stevenson's idea and stated that he was, quote, now fully convinced that this unit can be forged into a first-class fighting outfit in a reasonably short time after its complement is filled, unquote. On May 28, 1943, the recommendation was approved. The reinforced rifle company and the 75mm pack howitzer battery of the 51st were detached. A machine gun group was also organized on March 1st to offer the battalion light anti-aircraft capability. They were attached to the 155mm and 90mm guns. The speed at which the 51st organized is awe-inspiring, but none of that matters if the new Marines couldn't contribute to war. General Holcomb's warning that there would be a definite loss of efficiency in the Marine Corps was about to be tested. Thanks for listening. This week's audiobook is The End of the World is Just the Beginning by Peter Zion. Zion is another geopolitical strategist. His book dives into his predictions on what the world would look like in the future. After World War II, the United States ushered the world into globalization. We saw the USSR building its armies and understood that we needed partners to ally with to contain it. The U.S. offered to use our powerful navy to help defend the seas so other countries could travel anywhere and access any market. This wasn't always the case. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you've heard me speak about our history with pirates. To the shores of Tripoli, right? The Barbary Wars were fought for this reason. In return for using our Navy, the United States required that we have a say in our allies' security policies. This is the Bretton Woods Conference that was held in July 1944. But with the fall of the Soviet Union, alliances weren't seen as a priority anymore. In 1992, Bush Sr. wanted to reform the system. He gave his famous A Thousand Points of Light inaugural address where he tried to have a national conversation about what the U.S. wanted out of this world. But Americans didn't want to have that conversation, and we voted him out. Since then, we voted for leaders who were more populist and isolationist, and our priorities have shifted. Zihan predicts that globalization is ending, 
and the world will change drastically as a result. His take is fascinating. The advancement of civilizations in the past largely depended on the resources available in your country, but globalization gave the world the ability to import resources they didn't have. This helped many countries industrialize quickly. However, without the protection of the United States, that will all change. There are a lot of unintended consequences of globalization, the most critical arguably being population growth. As countries technologically progressed, people started to move into cities. Children weren't needed to work on farms anymore, so people started having fewer kids. This will ultimately lead to a smaller workforce supporting a large retirement class. Current societal structures cannot support this change, and the world as we know it is bound to change. The timeline differs depending on the country. China, for example, will be impacted quicker. Not only were they one of the fastest countries to industrialize, but their one-child policy left them without an adequate working force. Zihan has received a lot of attention. If you're on the fence about getting this book, listen to some of his interviews. He's everywhere. If you're a Joe Rogan listener, he was on his show a few months ago. Visit audibletrial.com slash history for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.